Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Season 5 of Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wollner. This is Episode 4 of A Better Search for Barbara. In this episode, a rapist, a creep, an investigator, and me. Dear listener, you're still here, still listening, and like me, wondering about Barbara. Barbara Louise Cotton, who is not here, who is the inverse of us, who is nowhere, just vanished and gone. Here's our plan. This is episode four of five regular episodes to be released one a day for five days. After that, I anticipate at least one, possibly many, update episodes, and I'm hoping you and others will send theories and thoughts, questions, ideas, tips, and leads to me so we can continue with this better search for Barbara. In these two remaining and pre-scheduled episodes, we're going to try to pick things apart a little more, continue to look at all of this from a tilted angle, hopefully a little bit differently than anyone before. We're going to do some investigating of our own and look at possible suspects, theories, and leads. We will look closer at some of the players, the police, the boyfriend, the mother, and her family, as well as some new players we have sniffed out from the shadows of 1981 Williston. And finally, in episode 5, we're going to summarize everything, throw everything we know and have learned onto the table and sift through it, and discuss the very many potential theories and explanations for Barbara's disappearance, from the most plausible and logical theories to the long shots, the somewhat far-fetched. And finally, I think I'll be making a recommendation to Kent and Kathy Cotton, Barbara's siblings, a very unorthodox and possibly controversial suggestion a possible path to find out what really happened to their sister. I want to get this right so much for her. And I feel guilty that we didn't do enough early on. And I feel terrible that this happened to her. After that, it was, oh my goodness, my mom and my sister did not get along. My, oh, there was a lot of fighting between the two of them. She was not a runaway. Come on, it's been 40 years. Can you tell us if, like, did Louise say that they went out to eat or? Yeah, like I said, she had a big heart, but it's almost to a fault, maybe. But any extra factors that you throw in is going to make you more vulnerable. Her mom's story never did change. Nobody had ever sat me down throughout all of these years and asked me anything. I've been doing a lot of thinking about the police, Louise Cotton, and the first week of Barbara's disappearance, and I'll be honest, it's driving me a little nutty. I keep hoping for definitive answers, but I can't get any. For example, I don't think the police did enough early on, but I'm not sure why. Were they incompetent, or did Barbara's mother get in the way, maybe even inadvertently? Were they too lazy to interview Kathy Cotton, who shared a bedroom with Barbara? 
Or did Louise somehow shelter her kids from the investigation? And if she did shelter them, for what reason? Was it the good intentions of a mother protecting her kids from trauma, or was it to protect herself for some reason? Did she not want the police snooping around in her personal life? I don't know, but I will say this. The fact that she was telling the world that this mystery guy was a boyfriend of Barbara's, that means something. It might not mean anything truly important to solving this case, but it means something. Nobody else in the world believes Barbara had a boyfriend, nor do they believe that if she had just met some guy, it would have evolved to that kind of status so quickly. There's a reason why Louise referred to him as Barbara's boyfriend. I can feel it. I can't see it, but I can feel it. For a while there, myself and others didn't even think he was a real person, that maybe the whole story was fabricated by Louise. I no longer believe that. As I told you last time, I've located a news article from 1981 about this guy. Or I should say, at the time of this recording, I'm 99% certain it's him. Why? Well, Kathy Cotton was told his first name by the police three years ago. It's a very uncommon name for a guy. I've only met a couple guys my whole life with that name. But that's not all. Kathy knew other facts about this individual. Approximately 19 to 21 years old, worked in the oil fields, hung himself in jail in northeastern Montana sometime within the first year or so after Barbara went missing. Everything I've found, the article, his death certificate, it all lines up. Oil worker, 21 years old, just two and a half months after Barbara disappears, he hangs himself in jail after being arrested for disorderly conduct in northeastern Montana, and that very uncommon first name. This is our guy, the mysterious boyfriend. I hope to be telling you a lot more about him moving forward. This morning I petitioned the state of Montana to release documents about this individual's arrest and death. It might take a couple weeks, they might just deny it, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, never petitioned a state's attorney before. If you're a pro bono lawyer and want to help sometime, please give me a holler. It seems that nothing is easy when Barbara Cotton is involved in the story. For example, Kathy Cotton also told me that she was told by police that this guy, the mysterious boyfriend who hung himself in jail, was cleared of any involvement in Barbara's disappearance. I wonder how he was cleared. In a nutshell, we have a lot to learn about this guy, his life, and his death. But back to my point, I feel strongly that there is a reason why Louise Cotton referred to him as a boyfriend, even though he wasn't. Couldn't have been. I'll take a stab at a guess at a theory right now. Maybe Louise, as a parent, was embarrassed and ashamed that she left her daughter alone with some guy they hardly even knew. Maybe Louise told people he was Barbara's boyfriend simply because she wanted it to sound just a little bit more responsible on her part. She didn't leave him with a total stranger. It was her boyfriend. It's just a thought I had, I guess. What are your thoughts? I'd love to hear them. I'll tell you how to contact me at the very, very end of this episode. People I have interviewed have almost no recollection of a police investigation at all. What might explain this lackluster attempt to find out what happened to Barbara? Was it just the zeitgeist, the way things were back then? A teenage girl who's been arguing a lot with her mother is missing. Cops say, give her a few days, she'll come back. If she doesn't, we'll look into it. 
Some mothers might not accept that from the police, but not everyone is capable of pushing back on law enforcement, telling them what to do, saying, I won't stand for this, go find my daughter. In fact, that is true even to this day. Police wear the badge, the police have the gun on their hip, and honestly, many of us are raised to never question them. We can't blame or judge Louise too harshly for that, if that's what happened. The other morning, I was sitting in my office at 4.30am, working on this story. Outside, it was negative 29 degrees Celsius, that's 20 below in Fahrenheit. It was dark and windy, and as if negative 29 degrees Celsius was not deadly enough, my Google Home device felt the need to tell me that it felt like negative 45. On an absurd early morning like that, it's easy for a mind to wander and wonder. You lose track of what's absurd and what's not. Were the police actually looking for Barbara all those years, or were they just putting up appearances? Is it possible the police knew something, or believed they knew something, that nobody else did or does? Were they maybe convinced the boyfriend killed her? Maybe in their minds it was open and shut, but they just couldn't prove it. Why go looking for a mystery that's not a mystery? And yet, Kathy Cotton says the boyfriend was cleared of all suspicion. I wondered if that's true and accurate, what other explanations are there for the police not putting in more effort? As that North Dakota wind howled through the windowpane, my mind wandered further and further, like a trapper through the snow, my thoughts trudging along until finally I asked myself, could it be? Could it be that the police knew all along what happened to Barbara? That she was dead, or maybe that she was alive, that she's alive to this day? I sent these swirling thoughts in an email to Carrie Abbey, the private investigator whom we met briefly last time. Later that day, I got an email from her. I found a resident of Minnesota using Barbara's social security number, her full social security number. So obviously your email, well, I think you were surprised too. I was, and I started looking at this, this record that I had pulled and I pulled it based on Barbara's full social security number. And it comes back to this male living at this residence in North, excuse me, living at this residence in Minnesota from February, 2013 to March, 2014. And I thought, man, that's not that long ago. And suddenly I thought, maybe somehow this whole case is some kind of huge misunderstanding or ridiculous mix-up. Maybe Barbara is not only alive, she's alive and well, and not even really hiding. I searched this gentleman's name, his address. As it turned out, this guy in Minnesota had a social security number that was just one number off of Barbara's. Carrie explained that someone had certainly run a credit check or background check or other type of report on this guy, and then he or she had hit the wrong number on the keyboard. It was a typo, a mistake. And so our excitement about this was short-lived. Barbara wasn't living in plain sight in Minnesota or anything. Nobody was actually using Barbara's social security number. Someone had accidentally run it in a report. Whoever ran it probably had to go back, double-check their numbers, but it was definitely just a typo. And then there was this. 
I searched for and discovered somewhere in this world there's a death certificate for Barbara Louise Cotton with a date of death in 1988. And I'll admit it, this confused me and annoyed me somewhat. What, she's been dead all this time? Was Barbara's whole story some kind of bizarre hoax or trick or a practical joke? What in the world is going on here? And to my knowledge, when a person is legally declared dead, all potential investigations about their death are closed. But Barbara's case is still officially open. It's still listed on the Attorney General's website. I didn't get it. I was confused. So I called someone who I knew would have thoughts on this. Hey, James. How's it going? Good, Chase. How are you? I'm good. Let me turn a fan off here. This is Chase Anderson. His father, Bob Anderson, went missing from Wishick, North Dakota, along with Kristen Joy Deedy over 25 years ago. Maybe you can help me and my listeners understand something, but uh, so your father's been missing since, oh my god, my memory's at 94 or 93? 94. 93. 93. You want to just give us like a 30 second breakdown of it, and then I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah, so in August of 93, my dad went missing. Um, him and his girlfriend, and um, there's been an active investigation now for 20-plus years um, that, you know, it's been, we've gotten some headway with it, a lot of of dead ends. Um, (laughs) They're very resistant on giving any information up or even returning phone calls. (laughs) I asked Chase what he thought of all of this, that Barbara was declared dead, but the case was still open. That's really that's really confusing. Um, I spoke with the ECA, um, and they told me that if we were to declare my father deceased, that that would stop all the funding for the investigation, um, and that would that would put them out of ever finding any answers to it. So that's that's very odd that that would still be an option for another person. And for that reason, Chase Anderson and his sister have never pursued having their father legally declared dead because they were told that his case would be closed if they did. This, of course, means that Chase and his sister are unable to receive their father's Social Security benefits. I called Barbara's sister, Kathy, to see if I could get some clarity on this. I wondered, did she even know herself that her sister had been declared dead? She did know, but I wasn't the first person to be confused by all of this. Lieutenant Hansen, I'm not quite sure when he had taken over the case, but the year my mom died, he had the case. 2004. He said, Kathy, this case should be closed, but we're never going to close it. And I'm thinking it's because of the circumstances. I'm thinking the Williston Police Department feels like they dropped the ball. After her mother Louise died in 2004, Kathy found some paperwork regarding all of this in her mother's belongings, including documents from a lawyer. These documents were dated the year 1998. They had it dated back to 1988. You have a letter stating that in front of you? Um, let's see. This is from the lawyer. Certified copies of the health or the death certificate of Barbara. This includes my work in in that regard. If you have any problems. Yeah, that's why she did it, so she could touch Barb's money. And this was in 98? Yeah. From what I'm understanding from this paperwork is that she did this in 98 and had them put on the death certificate in 1980. 
So Louise Cotton had her daughter declared legally deceased in 1998, but they put the date of death April 88, seven years after her disappearance, which is the legal amount of time required. They had to put some date, and so that's the date they picked. Apparently in later years, this also confused the police. See, but what confused me was, until I found this paperwork, was that um, she never told me that what the date was on the death certificate. Got it. Got it. So when I found, you know, so when they were telling me at the police station that the death certificate said 1988, I'm scratching my head going, what? So that made me start going through things of my mom's that I have upstairs. (laughs) And I'm like, something, something just doesn't add up here. That's why we're having this conversation, because I was, I was really confused. You have perhaps heard the catchphrase, follow the money, made popular by the 1976 film All the President's Men, about the illegal break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in 1972, which ultimately led to Republican President Richard Nixon's resignation. When I heard Kathy say that her mother had Barbara declared legally dead so she could touch her money, I immediately thought, follow the money. At the time of her disappearance, Barbara and her siblings were receiving social security checks on a monthly basis, benefits from their father, who had passed away a few years earlier. And when Barbara disappeared, the checks kept coming. And so we might ask ourselves, what happened to that money, both back then and later on? I thought following the money might be a good way to explore potential motives. Was Louise spending Barbara's money? Could I find any suspicious behavior, any clues at all? Yeah, and see, my mom's got letters that she's sent all in this one envelope to Social Security, you know. Kathy and I discussed all this, and as far as I can tell, this was handled in the most ethical way possible. Not only did Louise Cotton not spend her missing daughter's money, she went out of her way to hang on to it, bending over backwards to inform the Social Security Administration that her daughter was missing and she was still getting these checks. It seems that Louise Cotton was very concerned that she would be accused of something, holding this money or spending it, and possibly getting in legal trouble. And I don't blame her. I guess that would be a precarious situation to be in. Do you send them back? Do you put them in savings account? What do you do? Well, so, they, yeah. for her, in fear of her getting into trouble, she put all of Barb's into Barb's savings account. Yeah. Because she didn't want to get maybe in trouble. In trouble from Social Security if Got that it. money wasn't still there. Following the money in this instance led to nothing suspicious looking. I even had Kathy snap a picture of one of those documents and send it to me. You know, just crossing my T's. Louise Cotton did not take her daughter's money. She didn't run to Vegas with it in 1981. She didn't spend it on a new car. She put it in the bank, and she hung on to it for almost two decades. And by the way, I did order and receive Barbara's death certificate. The place, time, and manner of death were all listed as unknown. After this short break, private investigator Carrie Abbey and I are going to retrace Barbara's last footsteps. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. 
Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. You'd cross the street here? Yeah. <laughs> and then we'd walk to that corner there. Fifth uh, Street, right? Yep, this will be Fifth Street and Third Avenue West. Recreation Park in Williston is a city park located on one city block. It's framed by two streets and two avenues. On the north end, it's 5th Street West, 4th Street West on the south. 2nd Avenue hugs the east side and 3rd Avenue the west. When I was there on a cold Saturday in January, it was mostly splattered with snow, but I can imagine it in the late spring or summer with green lawns, a volleyball court, and laughter in the playground. The park is 148 meters long and 110 meters wide. Americans imagine one and one-half football fields in length by one football field in width. If you're in Stockholm, Sweden, imagine a somewhat wider version of Maria Toriet, Maria Square. If you're in Melbourne, Australia, it's exactly the size of Argyle Square and Lincoln Square. The only real information we have is what from the so-called boyfriend said he watched Barbara Cotton walking west on 4th Street from the area of the Plainsman Building. She would have crossed 2nd Avenue and entered the southeast end of the park. I met Sandy Evanson at Recreation Park that day, and she showed me and explained how she and other neighbor kids would walk home. They would enter the park near that southeast corner and then walk Kitty Corner northwest, right through the park to the corner of 5th Street and 3rd Avenue. From there, Barbara would have had three blocks to her home, walking directly west on 5th. That is, if Barbara Cotton ever made it all the way through the park. Because this was back then, too. Now it's like, you know, now if you're in here at night, the police are going to come and talk to you. But back then it was a popular hangout for the kids that got into trouble. Oh. Or didn't have a place to go, maybe, or something, you know. Okay. Was there any speculation that Barbara maybe was going to meet someone here? Was she in the, get, Was she in trouble? The type of... She... That would be one of the things, I guess, that kind of... My dad was super strict mm. and wouldn't let me get away with stuff. And Barb's mom being a single mom and not having a dad at home. Yeah. She started running a little bit more than I did. And so that's one of the, one of the other reasons besides the age difference. Us being a year apart and me going on to high school and her yeah. being at junior high. That kind of separated us a little bit. Why we didn't run together. She was... Like, I was doing things like the roller skating. Barbara had no fear like that, though. Like, oh. I think I had mentioned this to you yeah, before. Yeah. She would always walk me halfway at home. <laughs> and I'm the older one. I was the bigger one. I was the one that grew up wrestling. She was the tiny, skinny, yeah. little. But just... she was never scared. Well, that... Okay, well, let's continue on to the corner. Did Barbara stop in the park and talk to somebody? We don't know, and that's something that's pretty difficult to investigate now. All I can do is say, hey, if you used to hang out as a kid or a teenager in Recreation Park in 1981, please reach out to me. Where more? Half the time, walk across or walk down the center of the street, or or like we would sooner or later make it over to this side of the street, the north side, and walk west until you see that stop sign there. Oh, and, the, and then Barb would have probably cut 
across that street in her property there used to be a little community of houses there and her she would have cut if barbara made there. it to that corner something happened to her on those three remaining blocks home maybe somebody came by in a car and just snatched her off the street that's pretty hard to investigate today too you might ask is there anything we can actually investigate 40 years later well, I did think of something, and sure, it's a long shot, but you know what? A long shot is still a shot, still better than doing nothing. I called the Williams County Assessor's Office in Williston and requested some public records. I asked for property tax records from 1981 for the homes between the park and the corner of 5th and 6th Avenue where Barbara lived. So, basically, I was looking for a list of names of the owners of those houses along those three blocks. The assessor's office was very helpful, and within just a few hours, I had a list of 21 homes with 30 names of people who possibly lived there. When I say possibly, I just mean that just because someone owned a house and paid taxes on it, it doesn't mean they were living there. They might have been renting it out to someone else. But again, a long shot is still a shot. I sent the list to Carrie Abbey and asked her to check if she could find any history of violent or criminal behavior by any of these residents. I don't know if the Williston police ever did this, but I wondered maybe there was a serial rapist living right in Barbara's neighborhood. A couple of days later, Carrie and I jumped on a phone call. We walked down the street in our minds with Barbara, and Carrie told me what she had learned. Hey, Carrie, how's it going? Hey, James, how are you today? I'm doing good. Great, and uh, uh, I can't wait to hear what you found out. And again, thank you so much for doing this. And matter of fact, let's learn a little bit about you. Yeah, tell us a little bit about what you do. So my name is Carrie Abbey. I am a licensed private investigator here in North Dakota. Um, I run, uh, well, I own and operate my own agency, Abbey Investigations or Abbey Investigative Services, LLC, if you want to get technical about it. Um, I specialize in criminal defense. I've been doing this kind of on and off for about four or five years now. I was previously enlisted in the Air Force, and when I got out, I just kind of fell into criminal defense as a, as a job, and I've been doing it since then. And my agency has been running since, let's see, September of 2019. So what do you say? Should we go crawling around the, or walking down the streets of Williston, North Dakota for a little bit here? Yeah, I'm ready when you are. I imagined Barbara Cotton standing on the northwest corner of the park, facing west. She takes those first few steps, crosses the street. On her right was 501 3rd Avenue West to the north, and on her left to the south, 431 3rd Avenue West. If we were looking for criminal behavior and potential suspects, things did not get off to a great start for Carrie and I. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Um... I was not able to, one of those addresses, the 501 3rd Street, or sorry, excuse me, the 501 3rd Avenue West was listed as a questionable record from the records keeper. I couldn't verify that name. I couldn't verify the past with that address. I mean, I got nothing, nowhere with that. The positive side of that is there's also no criminal records for the, for the uh, resident, the taxpayer. Just to be clear, the names on our list were the owners or taxpayers for those homes back in 1981, 40 years ago. Many of them are deceased today. So tell us 
Tell us what you do with that name. Um, so what I do is I take that name and I run it through a database and I look, I start by looking for that person, uh, just the name and whichever state that I think they live in. So obviously we're in North Dakota. We're talking about a town in North Dakota. So I'm going to run that name with just North Dakota and see what I get. I got nothing when I tried to do that. Absolutely nothing. I didn't get anything from that name. I tried to Google search the name. I tried to trace it back other ways. And I don't get a date of birth, no matter how I try to pull it. And I get some indication that that name exists in North Dakota, but nothing that ties it back to Williston, to that address, or really to anything that can make me believe um, that that person did reside in that location in April of 1981. And in the house on Barbara's left? So that one had two residents, um, because as you recall in the beginning, I said there was 30 names with 21 addresses. And at this 431 Third Avenue, the primary, you know, resident one is how I have them labeled in my spreadsheet. The name is too common and I got nowhere with it because it's so common. And I couldn't tie that name back to that address in any specific way. However, the partner, the second resident at that address, I was able to locate a date of birth and a date of death for that person. Um, I found no criminal records associated with the second resident and nothing in a commonality search that would tie back to criminal records for anybody uh, associated with the second resident, the address, or with Williston, North Dakota in general. Halfway down the block, Barbara passes the entrance to an alleyway. A home is on her right and another on her left. Um, resident number one for that address, I did locate a date of birth and a date of death. Um, however, that person has no known criminal record, I mean, not even a speeding ticket, nothing that indicates um, any sort of criminal history, questionable or not. Got it. And then 315 on the south, what did you find? It looks to be um, a husband and a wife. I was able to tie both of them to that address. I believe they may still own that property. I don't know if they live there, but I do think they still own it. They're both still living, neither have any sort of criminal history whatsoever, except little traffic tickets uh, here and there. We're talking like a seatbelt ticket for one and I think a speeding ticket for the other. Barbara reaches the end of the first block, the corner of fifth and fourth, two blocks from home. There were two more houses one to the south and one to the north. Resident one and resident two of 322 5th Street West do not have criminal records. 430 4th Avenue West, um, confirmed date of birth. He is probably one of the um, oldest living. He has a current pilot's license. And I would say that to have a current pilot's license, you probably do need to have a fairly clean criminal record. Barbara crosses 4th Street and walks by a big house on the south side of the street. Carrie finds no criminal records. To the north, another house. Nothing solid, nothing good. And so we continued. More homes, more residents, but no criminals. When Barbara crossed 5th Avenue West, she had just one block to her own corner. One block and then a few hundred feet to her house. The house to the north confuses Carrie and I at first. Google Maps was messing with us. We decided we'd come back to it later. Certainly not the address right there. No. This is on like Fifth Avenue West, so I don't know. So that's either a Google Map issue or... So yeah. we, we'll have to make a... I'm making a note of that because I want to figure out what that house is all about. 
On Barbara's left to the south, another home and a large lot, at least today, according to Google's satellite view. Um, this person died in the 90s, and there was no criminal record for them whatsoever. Nearing her corner, a big house on her right. Not a speeding ticket, not a seatbelt ticket, nothing. Looks like this person stayed out of trouble entirely. On the south, no criminal records. They do not have any criminal record in North Dakota. I do believe they are still alive and living in the state. And then, just when I was thinking this whole idea was a dud, a couple of things did happen. We discovered that there were homes on the list that we had missed, two of them way back at the park, and the other one was that weird house that Google Maps seemed to have the wrong address for. We started with that one, and it got interesting. Resident number one has a very common name for this area, and his middle initial is A. The same person with middle initial B has been charged with negligent homicide in Montana, which threw me off for a little bit because I can clearly see that somebody by this name was charged. And so somewhere in the world, there was someone using almost the exact same name as a resident in that house and using the same date of birth, a person who had been convicted of homicide in Montana. Since this conversation, Carrie and I have ascertained that it was not the same person. The same date of births were likely record oversights. And as exciting as this little moment was, it was really just a dud. So I, I absolutely agree. I don't think it's the right person. It, it would have been nice if that had been the same guy. And then it was like, oh, there's the next step. You know, hopefully that'll be a good lead. But But then... We moved on to the last homes on the list, two homes way back at the park, the ones we had missed. One of these homes was a dud. And then we talked about another house, one facing Recreation Park, right near that northwest corner, three blocks from Barbara's house. This is where it starts to get a little bit more interesting. Resident one, again, it appears that resident one and resident two are a married couple with resident one being the husband and resident two being the wife. I was unable to confirm any information about Resident 2. The, the first name and the last name do not appear together in any sort of search that I performed for North Dakota. Um, as far as Resident 1 goes, looks like he passed away in 2020, and I was able to locate some criminal records for Resident 1. Um, these charges, I'm, I'm about to address them in a way that may feel uh, frivolent, but bear with me. Um, in 1994, he was charged with possession of a firearm by a felon. I can't see what the original felony was that made him a felon, why it was a problem for him to possess a firearm. In 1994, again, about nine months later, he was arrested for simple assault. In 1994, he was arrested for simple assault, domestic violence. And um, in 1997, he was arrested for simple assault again. This individual is interesting and, yes, a long shot, but I looked closer at him anyway. A few days later, Carrie and I discussed this individual again. How old would this guy have been when Barbara went missing in 81? He would have been about 30, 31 years old. Interesting. I found this individual's obituary. He was 69 years old when he died in 2020, but it was obvious that the photograph used was from when he was much younger. He looked young. He's wearing a, a hat on backwards, has glasses on. Goatee. I mean, uh, would you? I mean, it's not necessarily a biker look, or would you call it a biker look? He could 
kind of looks like somebody who is outside a lot. And I know that seems like a weird uh, explanation based on a picture, but. Yeah. And for everyone around the world too, like North Dakota is a harsh environment and up in the oil industry, for example, a lot of people have to work outdoors in the winter. Like I said, today it is negative 25 degrees Celsius. And yeah, it looks like to me, it could be a motorcycle, maybe not a gang member, but you never know. He could be. And yeah. uh, I was just telling my listeners about something Barbara's brother. I explained for Carrie what we had learned about Barbara. Her brother, Kent, told us that when they were quite young, he had been talking about the Motorcycle Association, the Hells Angels, and how bad they were. And Barbara's response was, no, they're just misunderstood. And I shared the story Kathy told us. She comes home from school, and there's a guy sleeping on the couch. It was someone Barbara had just met, a guy who needed a place to crash for a while. Barbara had met this guy, and he just needed a place to crash for a few hours. And then uh, her sister... Sister told me, and Barb would do stuff like that. You find that interesting? I mean, that seems like a very concerning behavior. Risk factors, yes. Exactly, exactly. That is some high-risk behavior. Imagine she's walking through the park. Maybe she's even seen this guy. He's like 30, 31, you said. He's, maybe she's met him before, you know, and he needs some help with something. It's not out of the question that Barbara might be enticed or lured into helping someone with something and next and then the next thing she knows he's in big trouble yeah that's kind of what i was thinking too this guy doesn't look particularly scary you mm. know i no, no. i don't like ranking people on their appearance like that because it is just individual perception um i mean he just looks like an average north dakotan and i think like that would be probably the person she's if she's known i mean he just looks like an average guy I just noticed in his obituary that his dog is mentioned, you know, and mm -hmm. one of the last known movements of Barbara is Barbara's friend, Diane, said uh, last time she talked to her on the phone, I believe Barbara said, hey, why don't you come over? We're going to help a friend, not a guy, but a girl, take their dog to the vet. And Barb called me and said, hey, I'm going over to Lori's and um, in the morning we're going to go and bring her dog to the vet. And I said, I... I just got off work and I probably wouldn't go because I I didn't I didn't want to go to the vet. I already mentioned before that this whole investigation is a long shot, but still. Barbara's helping her friends with dogs, taking them to the vet. She likes dogs, maybe. In fact, she helps people with anything and everything. He, there's actually mention of two dogs in his obituary that he survived by one of his dogs and preceded by one of his dogs. I, I think that's interesting to note. I mean, he doesn't have a, a significant other. He doesn't have, you know, his survivor is his siblings and his dog. Imagine Barbara walking through the park. She arrives at the northwest corner. Imagine someone with a dog says, Hey, can you help me a minute with my dog? Or I'm looking for my dog. Or I need to give my dog a pill. I need help. Come on in, into my house, into my garage. My husband and I joke, and this is maybe not a good thing to joke about, but um, like that would be the way to get me is, is just show me a dog. Well, what would you recommend that I should do from this point regarding this, this guy? I don't see him as a particularly great suspect um, for anything, primarily because I don't really see a criminal history that would lead me to believe. You know, you don't just disappear a person as your first crime. 
and um, there's usually a lead up. He was in his 30s, so there should be a, you know, if he was a repeat offender. And I mean, science tells us, psychology research tells us that people don't just stop offending on their own most of the time. It can happen and it does happen from time to time, but it's not, it's not likely. So if this was the offender, I would expect to see something more in its history. I'm not ready to cross this guy off our long shot list yet, and I'll tell you why. In 1981, he was quite possibly living on that northwest corner, at least he's listed as the property owner. He was apparently married, but Carrie Abbey cannot find any information on this partner. Thirteen years later, he's getting arrested for domestic violence and assault, and arrested for possession of a firearm by a felon. We don't know what the felony was, the original crime that he got convicted of in the first place, or when it took place. There's no mention of his wife, ex-wife, whatever, in his obituary. There's no mention of anyone but two dogs. After his marriage and presumed divorce, he never connects well with anyone, at least not enough to be listed on an obituary. Yes, this is all a long shot, but I'm not going to cross him off our list just yet. I reminded Carrie that I'm planning on and hoping to be able to interview the detective who currently is in charge of this case. If I do get this interview with him, what do you think about me just handing this name off to him and seeing what he thinks about? I support that. The police can't investigate what they don't know is there. And as much as I want to say they should know exactly who every potential suspect is in the case, they should have canvassed the neighborhood and they should have done this or that. I'm saying that today in 2021. So I, I encourage um, allowing the, helping the police investigate. In case you're wondering, yes, it's been another week, and no, I've not got any response to my questions that I sent to the Wilston PD. Another thing I haven't told you about is that Carrie Abbey and I decided we should send in an open records request to the Wilston PD to help us with this investigation. We didn't ask about anything specific to Barbara Cotton's case, but instead things that might help us look for other potential suspects, not just people living on that one street. And so, Carrie sent in a record request a couple weeks ago to the Wilston PD, asking for any and all incidences, calls for service, or other activities involving reports of sexual assaults or sexual harassment during the years of 1980 through 1982 for the Williston Police Department. And then, yes, you guessed it, we plan to go through that list with a fine-tooth comb and see what we might find. Unfortunately, the response from the Williston PD was not what we were hoping for. A records administrator from the Williston Police Department responded and said, at this time, these records are unavailable as we are in the process of having our files digitized. Since this is a new process, we are unsure when the documents will be completed. If you would like to check back at a later date, I would be happy to help you with this request. Before I move on to another potential suspect, I should say this because you might be wondering. Diane's story about Barbara helping a friend named Lori take a dog to the vet a couple days before she disappeared, yes, I am trying to locate this Lori. Diane is only partially confident that the name was Lori, but I'm trying. I went through the Williston High School yearbooks looking for any girl named Lori with any spelling of Lori. I copied the photos, sent the pictures to Diane in Oregon. Diane did not recognize any of the photos, and she's not sure she would have recognized them either. 
If your name is Lori or not Lori, did Barbara Cotton help you with your dog a couple days before she went missing? If so, please reach out to me. Hey there, this is James from the future, sort of, not really. It's two hours before I published this episode, and I decided to come back and insert this very last-minute message to you about a better search for Barbara. Basically, the message is, do not miss episode five. Some new information has come my way in the last couple of days, so I'm revamping episode five, pushing much of what I had planned there to a sixth episode, and I'm going to bring you this new information at the top of episode five. In a nutshell, I've interviewed someone who's never been spoken to before, not by media and not by law enforcement, but they definitely should have been. I just want to make sure you don't miss the next episode. So with that, I need to get back to finishing up this last-minute work on a revamped episode 5, and so I'll leave you with this next segment of episode 4 about a person of interest in 1981 Williston. The third time I spoke with Diane Latticer, Barbara Cotton's best friend, she had remembered a few more things. But you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine. I'm not going to say her name. She was telling me, unfortunately, she uh, met this guy named... And suddenly, we have another interesting suspect, possibly a rapist, or at least an alleged rapist a student from Williston High School who raped or allegedly raped at least two women the same year Barbara went missing, 1981. I think he raped my friend when she, oh God, it was like 80, I want to say 81. Yeah, he actually raped another girl too. Her last name was got raped by him but I never met him and he never got in trouble my friend never reported it because she was embarrassed because she was saving herself a marriage and didn't want people to know that so she never reported it but the other girl I think reported it yeah she went into 7-Eleven grabbed some smokes because she just got off work and he like jumped into a vehicle kind of pushed her over and then takes her out by the river while his friends followed in a car behind and then he rapes her, and then he just gets out of the vehicle, walks back to his friend's car, and they take off and leave her there. And she told you this herself? Yeah. She's the one that told me about that. And I go, well, what did you do? And she goes, I go, did you report it? And she goes, no, because she was saving herself for marriage. And she was embarrassed that this happened to her, and she felt dirty and just stayed in bed for a week. and. Oh my God. But she she just told me. I, actually, I called her before um, you called to verify his name again because I since I don't know the guy, the, the name doesn't stick in my head as well. And uh, she's she's the one that told me about the girl. And I think the girl did report it in Williston. Uh, yeah, I think he just got away with crap. He shouldn't have got away with. Took her out by the river, raped her, and his friends are waiting in the car behind. So this guy's a real creep. So 
Could this type of person, if you say Barbara's walking home, yep. could this guy come along and just grab her and take her out somewhere? Because he's done it to two people. So is it possible that this grabbed yeah. her up? Allegedly, while a few of his friends looked on, and I can only speculate that these friends found it all a little amusing. If you are one of those friends who just looked on in your own ignorant youth, it's not too late. You can still find a way to be able to look yourself in the mirror again. Maybe you're not just older and wiser today. Maybe your heart has pulled itself out of the gutter. If so, do the right thing in your glorious adulthood and give me or the Williston Police Department a call because, really, maybe your friend is responsible for Barbara's disappearance. Don't worry, the statute of limitations is passed on rape. You won't get your buddy in any trouble for those crimes. But what about Barbara Cotton? But dear listener, you might be wondering, do the police, the investigators who are looking into Barbara's case, know about this alleged rapist? You know, that's a really good question. Listen to this. Do you remember when I told you that Diane Latticer was visited by FBI agents or whoever they were, about two years ago in Oregon? Diane told me that a few days later, or maybe it was weeks later, I'm not sure, she remembered her friend's story about getting raped in 1981. And just like in the movies, the investigator had left his card with her and said something like, If you think of anything else, give us a call, would you? And so she did. She called him with this tip. The agent didn't pick up, and so she left a voicemail and said, Hey, you should look into this guy who raped two girls in 1981 in Williston, North Dakota. And she gave him the guy's name. But Diane tells me that she never got a call back, and so we don't know that he ever got the message, that he ever looked at this guy. For all we know, you and I are the only persons trying to put this piece of the puzzle together. This is the part of the story where, I don't know about you, but I'm getting tired of listening to my voice talking about unreturned phone calls to law enforcement agencies. But, dear listener, I guess, what do you and I really know? We are but feeble, mortal beings attempting to find answers about a missing girl. We have no badge, no gun on our collective hip. Maybe we should all just stop asking questions and concentrate on making sure we don't jaywalk or park too far from the curb. I found this alleged rapist on Facebook, seemingly living a normal life in the upper Midwest. Wife, kids, house, boat, fishing pole, holding up his latest catch, crooked sneaky smile, looking smugly aware of the country he lives in, smiling wider than a U.S. president who knows, who's demonstrated that he could pretty much shoot someone on the street and never ever be held accountable. If you, alleged rapist from Williston, North Dakota, are allegedly listening, you should tell us what you might have allegedly done with Barbara Louise Cotton. Still to come on this season of Dakota Spotlight, a better search for Barbara. The pieces that I put together are not good. Does not end up into a good puzzle. But what about this? What about this boyfriend? He was always a smaller kid, and and he got picked on because of that. He was just a nice kid. 
And she kept telling me, I'm going to burn in hell for what I did. And I would ask her, Mom, what are you talking about? And she'd get really mad at me and tell me. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, James Wallner. This season is dedicated to my daughters and to all daughters everywhere. Some music in this season, including the song you're listening to now, provided by North Dakota-born, former Wishick area resident and UND grad Isaac Turner of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and his seemingly infinite number of musical bands and projects. This band is named Wowza in Kalamazoo. We also heard a little from his bands Out and the Hollis Group. Search for Wowza, Out, and the Hollis Group on Bandcamp.com or see the links in the show notes. Thanks much, Isaac and friends. To learn more about Missing Kids, check out the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at missingkids.org. To contact me, shoot me an email at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. If you're loving this season, please tell your friends in real life and on social media and give me a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not come and join us at the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Season 5, A Better Search for Barbara. Be safe, stay warm, and see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.